Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. End Climate Silence is a volunteer organization that pushes the news media to cover the climate crisis with the urgency it deserves. With digital activism and direct outreach, it works to change the paradigm for climate journalism. Climate is not simply a science or environment story, but the essential context for every story journalists are reporting. End Climate Silence also works to get fossil fuel money out of journalism to break up corrupt alliances between news executives and fossil fuel companies. Learn more at endclimatescience.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Lord Adair Turner to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Adair chairs the Energy Transitions Commission, a global coalition of major power and industrial companies, investors, environmental NGOs and experts working out achievable pathways to limit global warming to well below 2 degrees by 2040, while stimulating economic development and social progress. Amongst many other roles he has played, Adair was the first chairman of the Climate Change Committee in the UK between 2008 and 2012, an independent body to advise the UK government on tackling climate change. Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda. Adair, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about uh, your work at the Energy Transitions Commission um, and more focus on your most recent report on the carbon dioxide removals. Uh, which is uh, quite detailed and very interesting. But maybe just before we do that, if you can just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and what you do at the moment. Well, hello, I'm Adair Turner. I'm chair of an organisation called the Energy Transitions Commission. and I've been doing that for six years, since early in 2016, just after the Paris Climate Conference. And the Commission is a coalition of about 50 major companies from across the world. We're in China and India and Japan, as well as Europe and the US, all committed to the idea that we should get to net zero uh, emissions by mid-century in order to limit climate change within at least manageable uh, levels. Uh, Before that, I did a wide range of things. I've been a uh, management consultant, an investment banker, uh, head of the UK uh, Confederation of British Industry, uh, and also a financial regulator from 2008 to 12. But most relevant to my current role uh, in energy, I was also first chair of the UK's Climate Change Committee from 2008 to 12. Uh, That's the committee which in the UK is charged with keeping the government's feet to the fire uh, in terms of uh, the path of the UK towards zero carbon by 2050. Excellent, excellent. And before we discuss the report, I'd just like to get a sense of what's on your mind at the moment. Uh, Clearly, we're still dealing with COVID, um, terrible war in Ukraine, uh, all kinds of related uh, economic problems. But I guess looking at things more from an environmental and climate perspective, what is it that worries you most about this particular moment, Adair? Well, look, uh, we at the Energy Transition Commission are thinking quite a lot about the energy market implications of the Russia's uh, uh, invasion, brutal invasion of Ukraine. 
Obviously, the key concern is to enable the Ukrainians militarily to repel that Russian aggression and to help them with humanitarian aid. But this has also been a huge wake-up call to how dependent uh, Europe is on imports of energy, uh, fossil fuel energy, coal and oil, but most importantly, gas from Russia. And in the face of that, one does have to focus on the short-term and medium-term issues of energy security. Uh, how is uh, Europe, and particular Eastern Europe and Germany, which are most dependent, how are they going to provide energy for their economies uh, while not providing money to Putin's war machine? And the particular interest that we at the Energy Transition Commission have in that is how do we do that in a way which certainly does not delay the progress towards a, a zero carbon climate a, a, a economy, but ideally accelerates that. And there are some ways that you can accelerate that. We can have accelerated deployment of renewable uh, energy. One can have delaying or postponing entirely uh, closing down existing uh, nuclear plants. So we're very much focused in the short term over this month or so on this, you know, how do we strike an effective trade-off with as many win-wins as possible between reacting to a potential short-term energy crisis in Europe while keeping that long-term aim going. I think longer term, when one's able to divert one's attention from that immediate concern, I think my worry is that while we absolutely now know what the technologies are, which can get us to a net zero economy, at least in the energy building industry and transport system by 2050 or 2060 across the world. We know what those technologies are. We're just not investing and progressing fast enough. And the latest IPCC Working Group 3 report on the progress of climate mitigations has illustrated that clearly. And there's a sense of frustration and worry that really over the last five to 10 years, technological progress has given us reasons for optimism uh, that we can build this future zero carbon economy, but the combination of policies and commitments and actual investments aren't taking their us there fast enough. Yes, it's very interesting. And uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the reasons for that. Um, but what gives rise to optimism, Adair, such as it you might have? <laughs> Well, look, the optimism comes from the technological progress and the cost reductions that have occurred. So over the last 10 years, we've seen the cost of producing electricity by from solar photovoltaics come down ooh, 80 or 90 percent. We've seen uh, wind costs, onshore wind costs come down maybe 50 percent on average. We saw an offshore wind cost come down 65 percent. And those really mean uh, that across most of the world, indeed almost all the world, the cheapest way to produce a kilowatt hour of electricity is wind and solar. It's not fossil fuels, it's not nuclear, it's wind and solar. Of course, the challenge with wind and solar is their intermittency. So the big question in power systems now is not how to generate electricity cheaper, it's how to balance the system, how to balance supply and demand by 
time of day and by season. But some of the technologies which will help us do that are also progressing rapidly. Um, cost of batteries is down about 85 or 90% uh, in 10 years, and we can use that to balance between daytime solar production and continued nighttime use. And the cost of producing hydrogen from electrolysis of water, what's called green hydrogen, that is also collapsing. And that could be the key mechanism that enables us to balance electricity systems across uh, the year between times when we have, say, surplus offshore wind and times when we're short of offshore wind relative to demand. So all those technologies, uh, I think, make me very confident that we can get to net zero, but also some interesting ones uh, in other sectors of the economy. Um, uh, steel. Uh, I've just come back from a visit uh, to Sweden, and I was up in the north of Sweden at Lulia, uh, and uh, their uh, SSAB, the Swedish steel company, has a pilot plant which is uh, a, illustrating the ability to reduce steel using hydrogen as the direct as the reduction agent rather than coking coal. And what's interesting is six years ago, that was really a twinkling in people's eye, a technology we might apply in the 2040s or 50s. Um, but now, um, uh, SSAB had initially said, we will apply this technology to all our existing primary steel production by 2045, but they've actually brought forward that target to 2030. And so in sectors like steel, but also in shipping, in aviation, uh, we are seeing an acceleration of the technological possibilities and then a far greater confidence than we could have had five or 10 years ago that we can get even the really hard to abate, what were thought of as the hard to abate sectors of the economy, steel and cement, long distance aviation and shipping to net zero by 2050. So all of that makes me optimistic. And the challenge is the policy, the international coordination, the investment, but, but not the technologies. The technologies are there. Oh, very interesting. Very interesting. Now, can you tell me a little bit, uh, just the background or a little bit of an overview of the work of the Energy Transition Commission, what its key focus is? And then maybe we can discuss uh, why you wrote this uh, recent report on what was the background to that, how carbon dioxide removals must complement deep decarbonisation to keep 1.5 degrees alive. Yes, the Energy Transitions Commission is this coalition from across the world of uh, major companies. We, we, have, we have companies in oil and gas sector like BP and Shell. We, we have many companies in the renewable uh, electricity sector, such as Iberdrola and uh, SSE and Orsted and Vattenfall and Envision uh, from uh, uh, China. Uh, Longji Solar, biggest uh, solar manufacturer in the world. We have big, uh, uh, you know, heavy industry uh, players such as ArcelorMittal, uh, SSAB, Tata Steel. You can get the full range of the companies uh, on our website, and it also includes many financial institutions, uh, asset managers, and banks. So we are all united in the belief that we must meet. Uh, the commitments of the Paris Climate Agreement to limit global warming to well below 2 degrees centigrade and ideally 1.5 degree centigrade above pre-industrial levels. And our job and our sort of a, a distinctive uh, contribution is that we have become a highly respected analyzer of 
the technologies which can get us there. We know a lot about how to decarbonize steel or cement or shipping. What are the options in the power sector? And we also have very clear points of view about how it all fits together. And the most important message out of that is that the only way to a zero carbon economy involves a very, very uh, dramatic increase in the amount of electricity that we use across the economy. Two to two and a half times, uh, even in rich developed countries, you know, five or six times in India, 20 times in Africa, you know, maybe three or four times on average across the world. We have to electrify, electrify, electrify. So we have become known as an authoritative source of how the energy building industry and transport system can transition, the pace at which could can do that, the costs involved, the technologies involved. And with that, we then argue for the investments by private uh, enterprise, private business to take us in that direction, but also the public policies that need to be set in order to create the context in which businesses uh, will be able still to make profit uh, while taking us down the zero carbon path. So that's that's what we do at the Energy Transition Commission. Right. Now, this report, um, why did you write this? Or what, why do you think this is important? I could just give a little bit of context there, Adair. Yeah. So we have produced this recent report on carbon dioxide removals and their importance to keep 1.5 degrees centigrade alive. What we mean by carbon dioxide removals is things that rather than simply reducing new emissions into the atmosphere, actually take CO2 out of the atmosphere. And that could be by what are called nature-based solutions. And the simplest, straightforward, easiest one of those to understand is reforestation, which sucks CO2 out of the atmosphere into the carbon in the trees. But it could also include, for instance, a, a, a direct air capture followed by a carbon uh, storage. So that's what it's about. And this has always been a debate within the climate change community of how much of this was required. And we have been cautious at diving into this issue during the first five years of our work, because there's sometimes a danger that too easy a focus on carbon removals makes people think, oh, well, we'll be able to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. So I don't need to do anything about reducing fossil fuel use. I'll just offset it by removals. And I think that's really dangerous. And that's why for the first five years of our life, we really concentrated on how dramatically can we reduce emissions without using these negative emission technologies. And we are very clear that you can reduce emissions in the energy building industry and transport sectors by you know, 95 or more percent without using carbon removals as an offset. And it's absolutely essential that that deep decarbonization, as it's, as it's described, is the absolute core strategy to deal with climate change. But if you then add up the numbers, and you make the following comparison. Ask the climate scientists how many gigatons of CO2 we can put up into the atmosphere between now and 2050 and still limit global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. Answer, 
about 500 gigatons. And of course, it's, that's over a 30-year period from 2020, we did the calculation and we're two years into that. So it's probably about you know 460 or 440 gigatons uh, left uh, now. And compare that uh, with how rapidly we think we can reduce emissions because there are some sectors of the economy where however hard you try, you just, even if you're heading for net zero in 2050, there's just a limit to the pace at which you can get them down. And when we did the calculations, we said, need to limit global emissions to 500 gigatons, fastest we can imagine getting it down 570 gigatons, possibly if you don't really, really drive the policies of decarbonization as fast enough, as much as 220 gigatons. So you've got an overshoot. You've got an overshoot of 70 to 220 gigatons. And that means that to stay within uh, 1.5 degrees centigrade, you're going to have to have some negative emissions, some carbon removals. And so carbon removals do have to play a role in getting us to a uh, a limit uh, of of, uh, a climate limit such as 1.5 degrees centigrade, but they must, must be on top of deep decarbonisation of all sectors of the economy. So this report is really about, okay, if you need those carbon removals, what are the technologies that make that possible? What are the risks in those technologies? How can you mitigate those risks? And who's going to pay for this? How are we going to make sure that the flows of finance occur to drive the carbon removals which are required? Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And I mean, you make the point, and it has been, uh, and there are, there are strong views on this, aren't there? That uh, that you know, we start normalizing the use of these, uh, you know, uh, planetary scale negative emissions. Um, that it 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 allows. Uh, you know, many companies to continue with business as usual, and 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 you you, you highlight that there. Um, at the same time, uh, you it, it was interesting uh, to read your report, um, and there didn't seem to be, and I don't know whether this was a policy decision, uh, a, tre- a tremendous amount of analysis of existing schemes and the, the track record of those schemes, um, which um, is not a happy one, really. Um, you know, and when you look at the data and the research, you know, on carbon offset schemes, biodiversity offset schemes, um, you know, ETS and, and, and so forth, it's problematic, uh, very problematic. A lot of these uh, schemes yep. don't work. In some cases, the majority of them don't work. There yep. is tremendous corruption. There's just been a, 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 a in, in Australia, there's just been a, uh, a big scandal they discovered. Well, or there's a, a whistleblower, uh, uh, Professor McIntosh, who's pointed to you know some very serious uh, uh, underlying problems with with the calculations of uh, and, and this whole question of whether or not these are really additional in any meaningful way uh, campaigns or schemes that reduce uh, carbon emissions rather than just uh, some uh, <laughs> hokey pokey with 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 figures. Um, and I was just wondering, you know. Why or how 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 that happened? Um, I, I didn't find very much reference to you know failures, controversies. But if you start to look into uh, a lot of these, they are uh, pretty freighted you know territory with uh, 
you know, uh, even something like natural uh, carbon yep. solutions, yep. which, you know, again, you put the word natural in and everyone likes it. But, you know, yep. very recently yep. there's, you know, uh, 360, 400, I think, uh, you know, organizations of uh, climate uh uh, just around the world, indigenous peoples, various have 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 come out very strongly against that. So I was just wondering um, what your thoughts were on that. Out there, well, look, I I, I think it is in there. Um, uh, we are clear that the past is not the way the future has to be. You've got to break this down into two things. There are two types of offset that people think they can buy to offset remaining emissions. One is paying somebody else to reduce their emissions, um, but not actually having a negative emission, a carbon uh, removal. Uh, and those are sometimes called you know, reduction offsets. I mean, clearly there, there is, and we do mention in it, a, a massive problem of additionality. I Were you really doing something which uh, reduced emissions any more than they would fall in any case. And in the early stages, for instance, of the EU ETS, people were saying, well, I, I'm not going to reduce my own emissions. Uh, what I'm going to do is buy an offset from what was called the clean development mechanism uh, to pay a Chinese company, for instance, uh, to reduce uh, its you know, uh, HFC-type gases, hydrofluorocarbon-type gases. Um, and frankly, a lot of that was about to happen in any case. It made sense uh, from the uh, industrial cost point of view, and it wasn't additional at all, it, it, and, and it was just uh, greenwashing. And indeed, in our report, we do say clearly, look, you have to be very, very wary of these reduction offsets, pretending that you're paying somebody else to do your reduction for you. Uh, and indeed, by the time we all have to get to net zero, the role of reduction offsets has to be zero, uh, because if everybody's get to get net to zero, there isn't somebody else to buy a reduction offset from. So the role of reduction offsets has to decline over time, and it needs the tightest standards on additionality. And we essentially, uh, in the report, say, you know, the uh, the burden of proof uh, is on proving additionality. We think in many cases uh, it's highly likely that they won't be additional. But we do highlight two where if you get them right, they may be additional. One is, for instance, paying people to close down uh, a coal plants before they otherwise would close them down. And the reason why that's likely to be additional is that it's unlikely to make economic sense in itself. We are now at the stage where renewable electricity on a greenfield site basis to install solar PV plus a battery is cheaper than new coal plants. But unfortunately, it'll be quite some time before a new solar plus battery is cheaper than the marginal cost of running an existing coal plant. And that means that there is a prima facie case that paying someone uh, to close down a coal plant earlier than they otherwise would uh, will meet the criteria of additionality. But on the whole, the bias of our report, the, 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 the tendency of our report is to say, be very careful of the uh, reduction offsets. Let's start moving about the removal offsets. Now, when you switch to removal offsets, 
Um, you are absolutely right. Many of these, I think, in the past have been uh, imperfect, and a minority of them have been little other than scams. Um, you know, they uh, people have paid very low amounts of money. They've made themselves feel good by filling in something that says for, you know, $5 a tonne, somebody's going to do some reforestation project somewhere. And, uh, you know, uh, whether it's really happened uh, is unclear. And even if it is happened, you know, how much you actually achieved, um, whether it will be subject to reversal risks is very key. So in chapter four, we talk extensively about the dangers of reversal risks, the dangers that you do a reforestation project, and then there is a change of local policy, a change of local government, and, you know, hey, presto, your forest gets pulled down. Uh, there's a danger of what's called displacement, that you reforest in one area, but that simply means you uh, take something out of uh, some category of agricultural production and somebody deforests the area next next door. So the report is very much focused on how do we guard against the dangers of the past? I think maybe we didn't have a whole chapter on what had been wrong with the past, because I think almost everybody knows that. Um, but if you look at chapter four, it is heavily focused on how do we actually get standards which can make sure that in the future, when you buy uh, a credit of any sort, reforestation or uh, direct air capture, you are certain that it's occurred. And indeed, the key thing we talk about is a, a cost-risk trade-off. So if you buy from a direct air capture company like Climeworks in, uh, in, in Iceland, a thing that says we're going to directly capture CO2 and we're going to do some form of geological storage, that inherently is quite containable in risk terms. You know, we know how to measure that. Uh, we know how to make sure it's permanent. Nobody really has any incentive in not making it permanent. But at the moment, it'll cost you $300 a tonne. At the other end, you have projects which, if you get them right, can sequester a tonne of carbon at much, much lower levels, $20 a tonne, $30 a tonne. But these are the nature-based solutions, and they tend to have higher risks attached to them. So the challenge on the nature-based solutions, on which we focus a lot of the report, is how do you manage those risks? How do you make sure that when you buy a tonne of carbon removal from a nature-based solution, it really is going to occur? Right. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, carbon markets. Uh, I, I'm just wondering uh, what your thoughts are on carbon markets. And I'm just wondering about, uh, I think, it's, is it Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which has been uh, been worked on recently? How important is that? And is there has there been significant progress there, do you think? Well, look, I'll be blunt and perhaps to some people, you know, uh, this will be unexpected. Uh, I, I think it was important at COP26 for political and process reasons to do what was called you know, completing the Article 6 rulebook. But frankly, we never thought that this was by any means the most important thing at Glasgow. Uh, and I think Article 6 is a bit of a hangover from a period where one thought that uh, carbon markets, compliance markets, that there was going to be a very major role for a, a companies or indeed countries 
buying um, carbon offsets from other countries instead of reducing their own emissions. And we're absolutely clear that the UK, for instance, commitment to net zero by 2050 means net zero in the UK. And we should not be saying, look, our emissions are, you know, 100 million tonnes, but it's okay, they're really net zero because we bought 100 million under Article 6. So I think the relative role of carbon markets through Article 6, and I think almost everybody, you know, close to it accepts this, is just a less important part of the story than it used to be in the past. Now, there can still be a useful role. So if you take within the emissions trading scheme, in the report we say, look, it is helpful to try and encourage the removal markets by allowing people to buy a pretty small proportion of their credits in the EU ETS in a carbon removal market. And ideally, you ought to do that while simultaneously tightening uh, the total amount of credits in the ETS. So again, it keeps coming back to this point. What you do on carbon removals has got to be in addition to deep decarbonization instead of not instead of it. Once beyond compliance markets, where there is a, a limited role, but still a useful role, there are then the voluntary markets. Now, the voluntary markets, remember, these are voluntary. Uh, these are uh, companies saying, um, I'm meeting all the requirements, I'm buying uh, emissions credits, or my electricity suppliers are buying emissions credits under my emissions trading scheme, but I want to do something, and I've got a target of getting to net zero by 2050. But in addition, I want to claim that I'm carbon neutral or net zero today. And so I am completely voluntarily going to buy uh, some credits, uh, be they reduction credits, which are clearly additional, or removals. And if, if companies want to do that, we should encourage them to do that. We should make them feel that um, there will be, uh, you know, people will look favorably on them for having those high ambition uh, commitments. And it is crucial for those voluntary market flows that we also make sure that there are good standards, both of additionality and of true removal, so that the people who want to do a good thing and want to make that extra voluntary uh, commitment, you know, can be confident that they are truly uh, reducing emissions as a result. And so that is why, and this is really separate from the Article 6, this is nothing to do with either a company or a country doing something in Brazil and saying, okay, back here in Europe, I don't need to do so much, either at a company or country level. This is a voluntary commitment beyond it. Those markets have a significant and important role to play, but they also need good standards uh, to make sure that when somebody says, I've used the carbon markets to make myself net zero today, um, you, you know, there's some integrity uh, and there's a thing called the Integrity Council trying to work out what are the standards that achieve that uh, integrity uh, in those commitments. Now, those have an important role to play, but let's be clear, in the report, in the final chapter, we say, although let's encourage as big a flow as possible from that category, it probably won't be enough. And some of the heavy lifting on reforestation-based removals or avoided deforestation probably has to come on a country-to-country -country financial flow, developed countries to developing, but must be as well as 
not instead of developed country emissions reductions. Right. Very interesting. Thank you for that. Um, and now I, I do need to ask this question, and I'm sure uh, you get asked this in one form or another um, over time. I mean, we talked about Article 6, and I, I, I take your point that it's less important today and maybe less emphasis and so forth. But uh, in a recent uh, interview, uh, David Hole, who is uh, Chief Climate Change Advisor for, for Shell, he basically says that... Uh, you know, they uh, came up with a, you know, a strong proposal for many of the key elements in Article 6 and basically uh, that they were, you know, th- that they, they, they were taken on board. And uh, indeed, for another strong proposal uh, l- later in, in, in the Paris Agreement. So um, I just wonder about this, the tremendous influence of corporations within these processes. This is just one of sh- Shell, uh, the, 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 you know, the massive lobbyists uh, and so forth. Now, you're, you're the, the companies that are in, your, uh, in, in, in the commission, they have, uh, many of them are, are, are major emitters. Some of them are what you might call bad actors. They have a, a, you know, a track record of uh, talking and uh, mis, mis- uh, communicating and uh, about about climate change in various different ways and uh, so forth. How does that impact the kind of work you do? Well, I'm, I'm not familiar with the thing about, you know, th- that particular thing on uh, uh, Shell and Article 6. And, and actually, I find it quite difficult to work out how anything within the design of Article 6 would actually be much to the benefit of Shell. Um, but you know the, the issue is still a, a good one. Uh, we do have uh, some fossil fuel uh, companies uh, in uh, membership, but I would absolutely defend that. I mean, let, let's be clear. You know, fossil fuels is not like tobacco. Uh, you know, it would be better for the world if uh, people had never been making lots of money uh, out of tobacco uh, and killing people through lung cancer uh, without fossil fuels, we would never have got to the standard of livings that we have uh, across the world over the last 200 uh, years. And we also can't switch them off tomorrow. I mean, we can't say, let's have a fossil fuel uh, economy uh, free tomorrow. It will necessarily take us time. So the issue by which to judge the major fossil fuel companies are, are they uh, honest participants in the debate about how fast uh, we move and uh, what is required uh, to get there. And uh, we end up uh, with our reports, I think, uh, being able to take very bold uh, positions. And uh, the, you know, the test is in the things that we have said. Uh, in our reports, we have talked about a world in which oil demand could be down to 15 million to 20 million barrels a day by 2050. Uh, We have talked about a world in which gas demand, in which people used to think was the sort of fuel which the fossil fuel companies could move on to and which would go on growing for many years, we can see that coming down by 40 or 50 percent. So we are describing and we have been supported by all our members from all our sectors. Uh, We are describing and that we have been at the forefront of you know bold and ambitious targets, uh, we have been among the first to call to get to net zero uh, by 2050 or even earlier in some rich developed countries. We've talked about all the policies that are required to get there. We have overtly argued for bans on passenger car 
uh, internal combustion engines from 2030, which the UK now has. So, look, uh, you know, it's absolutely a legitimate question. But if somebody thinks that uh, as a result of the fact that we have uh, this wide membership, uh, that we've, uh, uh, you know, biased our results uh, to things which are in favour of their economic interest. I mean, please read the reports and see whether you still believe that. And it is actually very valuable to have involvement from all uh, sectors because it enables to understand all the technologies which are required uh, to get to net zero, the challenges of uh, the major uh, oil and gas companies, which will have to play a major role in this transition. They've got to take that cash flow they've got and reinvest it. But let me finally say this, you know, we have Shell and BP in membership. I, I would not let Exxon into membership. Uh, I think there are several US oil and gas companies which are not serious about the transition, and we wouldn't have them in membership until they become serious. Right, right. That's that's very clear. Financial institutions as well. We've got to discuss that. You know, uh, recent reports have shown since the Paris Agreement, uh, the largest, I don't know, 50, 60 banks in the world have put in $4 trillion into fossil fuel investment. Um, that's not really coherent with the kinds of goals and targets and where we need to get to, is it? Well, if you look at total fossil fuel investment across the whole world, uh, as tracked by the International Energy Agency, it's actually down quite significantly since uh, 2015 or 16. I, I don't have the figures direct uh, to hand, but it's sort of order of magnitude, you know, six or seven hundred billion per annum down to three or four hundred billion. So there has been a significant slowdown in fossil fuel investment. And I think it's also true to say that the back in 2015 or 16, I think a lot of people had not realized what getting meeting the Paris climate agreements should mean. Um, for instance, it's only five or six years ago that the Netherlands was opening entirely new coal-fired power stations. Um, Germany had no plan whatsoever uh, five years ago uh, to close down its coal plants. It's really what's occurred over the last five years, and it occurred between Paris and Glasgow, was an increasing awareness that to meet the climate agreements, we had to get uh, uh, to net zero around mid-century, and an increasing awareness that that was technologically possible. And the ETC, I think, can claim honestly to have played a, a significant role in, in both of those, particularly uh, the latter. And so what we've had, but it is only the last three or four years, is an increasing number of countries and companies and financial institutions saying, we are now committed to net zero. Let's remember that the UK, until summer 2019, our target was not a 100% reduction by 2050. It was an 80% reduction. It's only three years ago that we moved to that. The vast majority of countries in the world have only moved to net zero targets in the last three years. So were there a lot of things going on after Paris, which were still incompatible with the climate objectives? Yes, there were. But that was true of, you know, it was true of 
countries, companies, financial institutions, the, the penny really hadn't sunk as to how ambitious we had to be. What we now have, and this came out of uh, what's called the GFANS uh, initiative, uh, which was orchestrated by Mark Carney uh, and launched at Glasgow, is lots of financial institutions across the world now committed to making their strategies compatible with getting to zero by 2050 and compatible with science-based targets of how fa fast they have to reduce. And we have a lot of companies making those commitments, and I think they are all serious about it. Now, it's not straightforward how you do that, and here's the problems you, you face. Um, the world can't do without steel. Apart from anything else, it needs steel to build electric vehicles or to build wind turbines or to build the frames for solar PV. And right at the moment, there are a sole load of steel companies making steel in the old-fashioned way with blast furnaces and coking coal. So you can't say immediately, I'm going to not be willing to have any relationship with any steel company, uh, which, um, you know, after June this year is using any coking coal. If you did that, you wouldn't have a relationship with any steel company in the world. You wouldn't even have it with the most forward-looking steel companies, which were trying the very, very hardest to put in the new technologies. So what you have to do as a financial institution, and it's not straightforward, but we are, we the ETC uh, are now working with GFANS to work out how you do this, is you have to have a clear set of criteria for saying, okay, what should I expect of this steel company? How fast should they be able to decarbonize? What should they achieve by 2030, by 2040, 2050? And only finance the steel companies which are on that path and not the ones that aren't. That is the challenge of these net zero commitments. It's operationally difficult and complex to you know, turn into actual implementation. But my experience is that a lot of asset managers and a lot of banks are now very seriously engaged in, in trying honestly to reflect that it, it, at the level of detail that, that it needs. That's very interesting. I mean, you mentioned uh, you know, in, in the aftermath of the Paris Agreement, I think last year the figure was something like $800 billion. So it's still very substantial. But I, I, I can't help thinking... I'm that not sure that's right. I'm not sure that's right. Uh, the... the, the, the the authoritative source is the International Energy Agency. Right. Well, this is just from Reuters. Uh, yeah, Reuters. Yeah, well, I, I go by the International Energy Agency, and I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but it's always good yeah. to try and back, back, get back to fundamental sources. And yeah. the IEA figures, certainly when I were looking at them, were suggesting a, a significant decline in fossil fuel investment uh, over uh, that period. But actually, the figure is from this report. It's, uh, yeah, 185 uh, billion in, in, uh, for the largest 100 companies. But I mean, the point rem remaining, I guess, is that, you know, it's still substantial. And I just wonder, underpinning a lot of what you say is, uh, you know, very interesting. And, 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 and the distinctions you make are, are really relevant. But is this a, a kind of incentive based approach that, you know, uh, it's a very market driven approach um, that, that, you know, that, that if uh, the companies behave, then, then uh, the, you know, the share prices or, you know, investors will behave differently and so forth. Uh, what, what, what some people worry about is, is there's missing here 
is uh, regulation. And, you know, regulation, we don't, you know, so underlying a lot of these approaches to nature-based solutions is this idea of valuing nature, which is already a very tricky proposition. And if you start to look into the, the, how they do that, it's uh, quite problematic. But the whole question of, of valuing it, and, and you, some people would say, well, listen, you know, we don't get into valuing, you know, uh, prisoners or, or, you know, criminals or, or, uh, or things like that. You know, when, well, when there's a situation, when it's what you might call a social bad, we regulate against it. You know, yeah. do, do you, what do you say to people who say, listen, you know, market-based solutions and, you know, uh, to quote Mandy Rice Davis, you know, when, when, when people come out with a report or, 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 or it's not even a report, but uh, the ideas which are based upon markets and market solutions uh, and which large companies are behind, they, they would say that, wouldn't they? You know, uh, so I, people will say that and they say, actually, what we need is, is stronger regulation and much stronger regulation. And a lot of these questions will go away. This, the questions of standards Standards you mentioned, you know, getting right standards. Look at ESG, you know, and 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 so forth. There are so many myriad standards that nobody knows what's going on, and they're gamed by large corporations who, who can, you know, Shell has an A rating. You know, what does that actually mean? Actually, what it means is it's nothing really to do with their the, their impact on the environment. It's more to do with the risk of that company from their environmental policies, which I'm not sure a lot of people understand. Well, look, it's absolutely clear you need strong regulation as well as markets. They're not an either or. So I mentioned earlier, uh, I, I would say the most effective way to drive our progress from uh, the internal combustion engine to electric vehicles, which is uh, undoubtedly a good transition, is to just say that beyond 2030, we're banning the sale of new internal combustion engine passenger cars. That's a regulation. Uh, that's one that we've supported. Uh, I think it's a good regulation. There are some other sectors of the economy where I think prices and markets are more powerful. So that if you look at steel, because there are a multiplicity of different technologies that could get us to zero carbon, um, and because we can't simply say you're not allowed to produce any steel beyond date X, because we are going to need steel for the zero carbon economy as well. There's a lot to be said in steel or cement for saying, we're going to have a high carbon price, a high and a rising carbon price. So if you keep making steel in a zero, in a, in a dirty way, with a lot of emissions, you're going to have to pay for that. And that's going to create a level playing field between the good guys who are moving to a zero carbon uh, steel production, which might initially be more expensive, it, it undoubtedly will, and the guys who are still using the old coking coal uh, technologies. So I, you know, and, and those are not those are not soft levers. These are tough levers. Um, you know, a, a, a country coming in and saying, I'm going to have a carbon tax, and if you pollute, you will pay it. That is quite as tough as a regulation. Now, for a set of reasons, in relation to passenger cars bought by individuals, I would very heavily use the regulatory route. In respect to the choices that steel or cement or chemical companies are using on their technology mix, I'd use the carbon price taxation route. But they're equally tough policy levers. And they're policy levers, you know, which basically say, you, the companies, have got to comply. 
Yes. And it sounds like you're saying that these are part of a broad, uh, should we say, armory of, of tools, as it were, um, because one tends often to hear quite polarized views, the people who are for or against you know, carbon taxes, but they tend to be analyzed in isolation and not seen as part of an array of different responses. No, I think that's fair. I think that th there is a problem uh, that a lot of people come at this with an ideological bent. You know, they sort of say, you know, I'm a free market economist, so the only thing I believe in is markets, and therefore the only instrument I will accept is carbon pricing. You know, it would be wonderful if the world had a globally agreed carbon price. Oh, dear, we can't have it, so I'm going to do nothing. I mean, that's a caricature, but yeah. there is a wing of free market economists get pretty close to that caricature sometimes. Yeah. And you do get at the other end a group of people who sort of don't like the market economy, don't like capitalism, like regulation, you know, and are so suspicious of business that they say, oh, it's got all, it must always be regulation, it must always be bans. I think intelligent people who want to make sure that we deal with this problem as soon as possible will accept that different levers, different policy levers, are effective in different segments of the economy. Yeah, sometimes yeah. regulation is the most effective. Yeah. Sometimes carbon markets and carbon prices are the most effective. Yes, yes. I'm mindful of the time and I, I, I might be interested. Well, just to say um, that we, we do live in a time of, of markets, you know, the, the, whatever they call, however you define neoliberalism or the last 30 years, you know, it, you know in, in your report, I think it was 100, 120 reference to markets. Markets are, you know, very much the landscape in which organizations, corporations are working today. Uh, it, you know, and, and non-profit or, you know, even government organizations, private partnerships, private public partnerships. So it, it is the landscape um, and it it's interesting what you say, but I, the, one of the other interesting questions, I guess, uh, I mean, there were a lot of a lot, covered a lot of ground, but is the question of land and the availability of land. And I think in an earlier report, you, 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 uh, the commission argued uh, that that uh, wouldn't be feasible to increase the uh, amount of energy from bio resources. Uh, beyond a certain limit, I think it was 10 or 12 percent, without having a big impact on global food production or biodiversity and, and, and indeed on biodiversity. We've already had, the, the, you know, this uh, in, in Ukrainian invasion, which is, you know, clearly having uh, a, a big impact on, on food prices and so forth. But I'm just wondering, uh, when you look at a lot of the uh, scenarios that companies are putting out about, you know, uh, reforestation programs or various na na nature based solutions, is there going to be enough land? How should we think about that, Adair? This, I think, is one of the biggest and most difficult issues. So I talked earlier about a high degree of confidence that in the energy building industry transport sectors, which are responsible for about 40 gigatons per annum of emissions, we do know the technologies that could get us to net zero by 2050. When I then look at the 10 gigatons of emissions, either CO2 or the CO2 equivalent of methane. Uh, and on the latter, it depends how you calculate it, but this could be anywhere between, say, 10 and 15 gigatons, which is coming from the agricultural food and land use sector. That's where I'm most worried over the next 30 years that we do not have uh, definitive uh, answers. And at the absolute core of this, is the fundamental inefficiency of photosynthesis 
and the inefficiency of natural animal-based animal protein production. I mean, broadly speaking, when you have a field and it grows a crop, on average, about maybe a half at best 1% of the energy arriving from the sun is going to end up as usable energy uh, in that crop if you used it for energy sources. Um, And that compares with as much as 15% conversion when you've got a field of solar PV panels. And then when you take uh, the vegetable protein uh, from you know a, a, a vegetable production, plant production, and put it through a cow to turn into animal protein. You've got a system which is about four percent efficient, and it's this reason that while the calories which we consume in food are only about six percent of the calories which we consume in the energy system, it is the food system which is the fundamental driver of the destruction of biodiversity and the destruction of the rainforest. And ultimately, it is meat production, uh, the soya production, which goes into meat production, which is by far the biggest driver of uh, deforestation uh, and the uh, carbon emissions that come from that. And it's on that side that we do not have you know, definitive new technology solutions. We, we may get them with synthetic meat, um, but this is, in a sense, a, a bigger challenge given the array of technologies that are already exist and being deployed. In that environment, you have to be very careful about saying, okay, over on my energy building industry and transport side, I'm going to call on the land use area and the bioresource area to provide me the solution on the, the in, in terms of energy supply, because you are imposing an extra demand on a system which is stressed uh, in any case. And that's why in our report, we talked about absolutely needing to make sure that when bio Uh, when we are using bio for energy sources, we are making absolutely sure that it is not competing with food production and that it is coming from truly sustainable sources. And that is why we ended up with lower estimates for the role of bioenergy in the total uh, system uh, than you will find in many other reports. Right, right. Very interesting. Very interesting. What's next for you, Adair, and what's next for the Commission? So the Commission has a number of uh, work programs uh, for uh, this year. Uh, We're doing a major piece of work on what we call barriers to clean electrification. You have to go back to that fundamental fact that the only way to a net zero economy globally by 2050 is to greatly increase the size of the global electricity system and fully decarbonize it. Absolutely technologically possible, but not going nearly fast enough. So, you know, this is such a hugely important issue that having, you know, noted this in the past, documented what is possible, we're really pivoting to say, okay, why isn't it occurring fast enough? Uh, Is it about planning and permitting processes? Is it about power market design? Will it be constrained by material supplies like minerals? And how do you overcome those? But given that that's so 
important. Uh, we we you know we're focusing on that. We are also going to, for the first time, really focus on the issue of energy productivity uh, and energy efficiency. We believe that total global electricity demand could be in future anywhere between 80,000, 100,000 terawatt hours. It'll be 80,000 if we really get efficient in our use of energy. And although it's possible to build an electricity system with 100,000 terawatt hours across the world, it would be much better if we get that, you know, that 20% efficiency improvement. Again, an area we've noted in the past, we haven't really focused on it, we're going to have a focus uh, this year. We're also working closely with uh, GFANS on this translation of when financial institutions make net zero commitments, um, how do they operationalize that? What does that mean for what they should finance and what they don't finance? What are clear um, goods? What are clear bads, red lines? And what are ones which should be financed, but only uh, for a transitional uh, period? Uh, we are probably also going to launch a major piece of work, which we are planning and, and, and in, in the advanced stages of thinking about in relation to African uh, electrification. Uh, we have uh, new initiatives in uh, Japan uh, as well. Um, I've probably forgotten uh, some other things, but uh, that sounds like quite a lot to be getting going. And then one of the things we will come back to later in the year is what we call a fossil fuels in transition, really saying and it touches on what you said earlier, you know, given that we can't get rid of fossil fuels tomorrow, how rapidly should we get rid of them? And by the way, I did just check the figures we were quoting earlier. According to the IEA, in 2015, fossil fuel supply investment was running at 1,000 billion per annum. In 2020, 590 billion per annum. Now, is that fall rapid enough? Is it too rapid? How rapidly can we get down uh, you know, the barrels of oil, the use of gas? Uh, is there a role for gas plus carbon capture and storage? We, we need to uh, you know, work out how everything else that we've said, what it actually implies for what is an acceptable pace of reduction in uh, the fossil fuel sector of the economy. Well, it sounds like you've got a very full plate there, Adair. And um, thank you so much for your time today, for the, the great work you're doing, for your commitment to really getting to the bottom of these, these important questions. And I wish you all the best of success with your ongoing work at the Commission. Great. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Bye-bye. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally, and importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. <laughs>